I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is being recorded live on TalkShoe, August 7th, 2010. Model Rail Radio is the Internet's only live radio show where the topic is devoted to model trains. And uh, when we're talking model trains, we have to have the one, the only Mr. Chris Abbott on the line as well. Hello, Chris. Hello, Tom. How are things? Oh, pretty busy. Pretty busy. I understand that you've had a, a week off this week. Well, uh, that was the intent. Uh, I don't know what that actually means anymore because I was busier this week than I have been at work. So, Very good, very good. But uh, lots of little train-related things, apparently. Well, I did manage to squeeze in a couple of items, and uh, we can talk about them as the show goes on tonight. Certainly, certainly. Well, I, I have a wide variety of bits of news and notes, but I thought we might start off with... Uh, with your landscaping news, because it sounds rather epic, and I think there will probably be a, a lot of diversionary points where we can uh, pause and look at other things. So you described a situation where a large pile of clay arrived maybe three, four weeks ago now? Yeah, we had the big pile of clay that showed up. It was supposed to be clean fill, but the, uh, the definition was loosely applied. And... Uh, Moving that about proved to be pretty awkward, and it's gotten to the point where the quick realization is that if we spread it around anywhere, it's going to form an impenetrable surface for for water. So we need to cut it with some other material. So the other day we received another 10 yards of, of soil, compost, and triple mix, and a bunch of other uh, material, coarse sand, to mix in with it and of course I've started mixing it in and uh, trying to move that around to the places where all the the new holes are because I uh, ground out 14 stumps this week earlier with uh, the big gas powered stump grinder and uh, hopefully that'll make it easier to to look after the the property as well as give me some extra opportunity and chances to place uh, place the garden railway when it finally goes in. Very interesting, very interesting. So in terms of the, the track and the other components of the garden railway, you, you mentioned at some stage that the track was actually going to be arriving. Am I correct in recalling that? Uh, the rails are here and the tie strips are here. So all I need to do really is knuckle down and start building a substructure, which uh, which is going to be the the bugaboo because I'll sit and plan that to death and worry every little detail. But uh, I was able to uh, to go down and visit a friend of mine uh, just down south from here who's uh, started building his first garden railway. And his opinion is just uh, just grab a couple of pieces of wood and a, and a shovel and start building something. Uh, don't think about it too much. You'll never get anything done. Very good. Very good. And he... He's done some terrific stuff in a very short period of time, including uh, casting some very nice arched bridges using uh, concrete and some forms made out of scrap plywood and uh, rolls of tin 
for the Wonderful. arch. And uh, he's made up some some uh, some bulkheads or bulwarks that he can put rocks on top of and then put plants on top of that. And the track is running through the plants. It all looks very, very uh, picturesque, actually. It's coming along quite nicely, even though he's only been at it for a few weeks. And uh, his latest... His latest tribulation is actually putting together turnouts from from whole cloth. He's making them out of uh, the aluminum rail, uh, cutting and filing and fitting as he goes along. And uh, his first one took him an entire day, but he's pleased with the results. The carriages move through it without derailing and, and take either route properly. So only two more to go, and he'll have a Y and a circle of track. But uh, it's funny, because we were talking about the, the just-do-it aspect and, and uh, not letting the, the FUD factor, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt rule your, your uh, progress, um, that, uh, that that topic came up at, another, at the op session I was at a couple of weeks ago now, uh, where I went back to the Toronto Hamilton Buffalo layout of John Spring and had a, another good operating session. The whole uh, just do it attitude uh, and um, impetus came came through in that discussion as well. So it looks like uh, model railways and garden railways uh, really you can't you can't be too much of a planner. You have to let a bit of the organic. Uh, the organic flow into the process so that you can you can start work and get a little inspiration a little uh, along with the perspiration and and do a little work and change something and it kind of grows as you as you build it as opposed to uh, having everything nailed down I'm not sure that I'll ever be able to fully adopt that philosophy as I'm a bit <laughs> of a nitpicker well yeah. I'm a big nitpicker yeah. So, um, but, um, you know, I made a lot of progress in the, in the back garden here, including reviving a 30 year old tractor to do the work with. Uh, so I've been pulling wrenches and barking my knuckles on various bits of engine and frame for most of my holiday and then running the stump grinder and then starting to move around the earth. But it's a lot more like a construction project than it is a, um, than it is a uh, a hobby of of leisure. So Certainly. the temperatures the temperatures soaring up to the hundred degree mark uh, very early in the week. I, I think I lost about seven pounds. Very good. In, uh, in, <laughs> well, I, I put it all back on with the first uh, burger I had off the barbecue, but you know, <laughs> oh, well, can't win them all. More blessings, I guess. Yes, it's, it's certainly a good mantra, and shout-outs to uh, Michelle, Rob, and uh, Andrew Chisholm for taking over uh, the last show in particular, because I think the, the Just Do It mantra and also their uh, their particular perspective was just fascinating. And um, certainly the, the invite goes out to the entire Model Rail Radio listening audience in terms of uh, if you want to take over a show, uh, be our guest. For me, uh, I know you were on the call for most of... Uh, of last show, but for me, I actually pumped it through my uh, my radio equipment here, so I had the luxury of actually sitting and listening to it as a as a pure listener, um, which was quite a, a surreal thing. And also, of course, we have um, 
I don't know what the term might be, maybe traversed model rail royalty or something like that. We were mentioned on the uh, most recent Scotty Mason show, thanks to Dave Freire, but also um, Scott got in on the, on the praise as well. So um, shout-outs to those two guys from there. There are model rail podcasts. Well, really, it's more structure kits and just general uh, conversation, but they, they have a lot of fun on their show, and thank you very much to, to both of them uh, for putting a shout-out to our show uh, too. And in terms of the numbers, we did get a, a distinct bump in numbers, actually, which was good. So a number of folks who may be listening in for the first time, this is what we do on model rail radio. I think... Um, Scott gave a slightly different editorialization to the general structure of the show, but what we uh, what we tend to do is Chris and I will uh, have long rambling discussions about various topics in model rail, and occasionally we have other folks uh, who will call in. My my hope today actually is that we'll get Matt Goodman on the line sometime through because certainly the model rail radio mailing list has been uh, receiving a number of wonderful posts and photographs. In fact, my wife has been looking over my shoulder. Uh, as I look at some of the photos of the UK. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're both pretty misty-eyed with regards to seeing the UK. Um, so in terms of in terms of other model rail-related news, uh, anything anything else has been going on in the past three weeks, Chris, in your part of the world? Uh, well, as, as I'd mentioned, uh, there was an impromptu uh, or a rather an unscheduled op session up at uh, John Springs Place on the Toronto-Hamilton-Buffalo Railway. Uh, it came about because uh, Pierre, who I'd mentioned earlier in an earlier show, who's the master carpenter at the theater group, oh, yes. he had been over to Europe uh, earlier this year to participate in a Fremo setup at one of their big uh, uh, gatherings. They had something on the order of 700 modules at this Fremo meet, uh, which frankly is staggering. Uh, you know, seeing two or three dozen modules in a typical Fremo setup uh, that we'd see in a North American show can be uh, quite impressive. But to think that there might be 700 plus all gathered together in the same area, all hooked together, and being able to run your train from one end to the other uh, is just staggering. But uh, Pierre had been over there and participated, and uh, one of the people he met had uh, some holiday time coming up and was thinking about uh, modeling a North American prototype in his own home. So uh, he somehow contrived to be here uh, a couple of weeks ago and we had a big obsession and barbecue up at John's place where uh, our German friend got thoroughly immersed in the chaos that is our North American obsessions with well, way, uh, switch lists and uh, waybills, uh, which is a little different than what most people seem to use uh, here that I've seen, which is the car cards and waybills. Um, but we had a great time, uh, thoroughly enjoyable. It was about a four-hour session. Uh, probably 30, 30 trains or 30 movements were done. Um, transfer from yard to yard or from staging to yards or from the, uh, the pick up the power at the roundhouse and go and pick up a train and then transfer it to the belt line for uh, switching. Uh, great fun, a great fun day. And uh, as, I, as I said, Pierre had brought up the topic of um, the, the fear and uncertainty that, that grips a lot of especially beginning modelers in the hobby who, um, 
who may be exposed to either a, a large club layout at a, at a, at a show or perhaps uh, at, a, at a private uh, club venue where people have been working on the track and the scenery for upwards of decades and they have this magnificent uh, photo, you know, magazine cover quality display and the newcomer comes in and looks at it and says, oh, I can't do that. That's way too hard. I don't know how to do any of these things and kind of uh, restricts themselves or, or, or out, of, out of fear, they, they don't try all of these techniques that they could undertake. And, um, you know, I, I'm, in retrospect, I thought that that probably isn't limited to, to only the beginners. There are people who've been in the hobby, like myself, for 10, 12, 12 years, who tend to concentrate on things like uh, bench work and wiring and the electronic aspect and don't get into the structures and the scenery and uh, the, the detailed weathering because uh, you're going from something, you're going from aspects that require physical skills and handy skills like your woodwork and your electrical work into something that requires a more artistic bent. And a lot of us don't really feel that we have the, the artistic uh, technique and knowledge and wherewithal to go about reproducing some of these wonderful things that we, uh, that we see in the magazines and at other people's layouts. So, um, and, you know, based on what Michelle and Rob said last week or last show and what I've been hearing from people, uh, advanced people all around in the hobby, really, and this is, this is a truism, you don't get any better if you don't try and repeat and learn from your mistakes. Make the mistake, make a mess, realize, oh, that's not the way to do it. Improve your skill, improve your technique, try it again, it'll look better. Um, and I think actually uh, Mike Rose said that on one of the most recent uh, Scotty Masons as well with, his, with respect to his weathering that he does on the contemporary models. His first model didn't look anything like his latest model in terms of the quality and the appearance. And he wouldn't be as good as he is today if he didn't ruin dozens and dozens and dozens of cheap Athern or Walters cars in the process over time. So um, ultimately, uh, you, can't, you can't stress out over the hobby, right? Don't get too worried about it. Most of, the, most of what we're working with is little sticks of wood and little slabs of plastic, and they're not, they're not the earth. They don't cost a fortune. Even the strips of brass, although they're more expensive than they used to be, it's, it's brass, not gold. So don't be afraid to cut it up and bend it and solder it and and uh, file it and twist it. And if it doesn't turn out exactly the way you want, then get another scrap piece or get another piece and do it again. So, certainly. Um, certainly. I have one of uh, Mike's DVDs, and a lot of his processes are actually reversible as well. And I think that's, that's also the advice that I could provide as I've, I've built various structures, is that they're actually reusable too. I mean, if you do things poorly initially... Uh, you can go back and cut it up and, and redo sections, and particularly because a lot of the, uh, well, not necessarily all, but a lot of the tracks that uh, folks will model will have old abandoned buildings or things that are a little bit wonky or a little bit run down or these kind of things. And I think the ability to reuse structures, and particularly with weathering techniques, I mean, you can you can do various things to uh, 
either remove or paint over or overcome bad weathering uh, and, and redo various sections, not a lot of what we do in this hobby is completely ruined, uh, next to, I guess, breaking things down into very, very small pieces. But even even the weathering techniques that Mike Rose uh, describes, you can, uh, in, in most cases, strip off parts of it or repaint or do a variety of things to... Uh, to learn the techniques and not necessarily have to go through so many uh, different uh, Athlon or Walther's uh, cars in order to get there. I mean, particularly with regards to structure building, if you have, I guess, in terms of the actual assembly and these kind of things initially, obviously folks are, are going to make uh, mistakes early on. But once the basics have been uh, understood, uh, particularly in terms of creating right angles and, and various other relatively basic techniques. Then the weathering effects and these kind of techniques are all things which are, if not completely reversible, at least semi-reversible. And uh, I guess when I go back, uh, certainly in, in uh, military models, miniatures, obviously not plastic ones, but metal ones, uh, some of my worst paint jobs I've still been able to uh, scrape off at some stage and improve at a later date. And I think the same is true with regards to a lot of what is done in model rail, particularly um, in terms of the uh, resilience of structures to additional paint, additional weathering techniques, these kind of things. I mean, is that a, is that a fair assessment, Chris? I think it is. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, when I was watching Mike's DVDs, he, he uses a, a, a mixed-media... He, he uses both acrylics and, and uh, solvent-based paints at appropriate times in the sequence such that he can, uh, one coat uh, provides um, an impenetrable barrier that everything else can go on top of, and using the appropriate uh, uh, liquid, he can, he can back things up by wiping them off without disturbing this, this base coat. And I can't remember whether he does the acrylics first or the solvent-based stuff first, um, I'd have to go back and look at it again, but uh, I know you've done an awful lot of uh, military diorama work and, and um, metal models, and I know that at one point in time, the enamel paints used to be, like Humbrol used to be a really big paint for uh, military figures. Is, was, was that something that you used that you could, uh, you could work with then on top with the, the acrylic, uh, acrylics or... Uh, weathering powders or something. Well, the what standard technique on, on metal is is to is to put down uh, something like a, a hum roll or some kind of uh, of uh, I don't, my mind's gone blank with regards to the actual terminology. But apply the acrylics over the top of that, with the view that it creates a kind of protective skin that will, if if need be, uh, be easy to peel off and start again. So certainly that technique has been used in uh, metal uh, models for, well, probably generations now. The technique, as you described with regards to micros, is, is similar, um, except it is actually on the plastic surface. Uh, and I think there are probably uh, similar techniques with regards to wood in terms of creating, uh, well, semi-reversible to fully reversible uh, painting surfaces so as your technique improves or as you have different ideas uh, you can return to uh, a particular piece but I think um, in combination I've been listening to uh, the most recent uh, Scotty Mason show and also some of the kit casts in terms of structure building 
And uh, the most recent uh, Scotty Mason was regards perspective was really fascinating. It got me thinking quite a bit in terms of the uh, scale issues, um, particularly um, if I was interested in taking 28 millimeter um, toy soldiers and putting them into S um, scale, particular. But I think the the thing that struck me through uh, the kit cast discussions was this idea again for particular lines, although I think of UK lines very much in the same way as New England lines, a lot of the structures as they're built originally are modified on a maybe every two or three decade basis through their extended lives. So you can probably start with a relatively simple structure on your layout and then add additional details as your skill set gets better. Um, and I think this is not necessarily the, the same kind of description associated with painting and weathering, but certainly if you start with relatively basic structures with the view that as your skill set improves, you will add a greater degree of detail and possibly internal lighting or these kind of things. There are techniques relatively early on uh, which will allow you to kind of continue with these options with the view that I guess what, what Chris and I are describing is really how to get the most out of your hobby for the minimal amount of money, um, which seems to be the uh, the kind of golden topic in uh, in today's economic climate. And certainly, um, rather than worrying about uh, damage and destruction and the amount of money you're going to waste on particular kits, maybe, I don't know whether it's a particular an early kind of care that needs to be taken initially, but just the sense that maybe this is something that once you've assembled it, you may continue to work on for um, you know potentially many more years to come. I think this was some early Dave Freire narrative associated with revisiting uh, kits that he had built maybe even 20 years ago uh, and adding uh, additional features. And I think probably this is something if you, for folks who are starting out who would like to start building structure kits but also um, have the ability to treat it as I don't know, not necessarily an investment, but certainly something that will give you um, not just hours of assembling happiness currently, but also the potential into the future of adding additional bits of detail. I remember um, maybe a year, maybe a year and a half ago, a model railroad uh, discussing moving a layout from the 1930s to maybe the 1960s, or maybe it was a different time delta. But it was of that, uh, it was of that kind of time delta with the view that you could, uh, you know, do various things to various structures, obviously maybe not so many coaling towers and these kind of things, but uh, that you could do um, various modifications to, to rail-related buildings, and I'm assuming also other structures on layouts to uh, add additional details like you know, relatively more modern cars or um, various features which uh, you may not necessarily see in, in uh, newer style buildings that you would need to add from older buildings. I think there are there are a wide variety of possibilities, particularly if you're um, either upgrading a layout or starting a layout afresh with the view that, you know, maybe in a decade's time you want to change things up a little bit and what will you need to do to the buildings in order to do that? I guess the only feedback I can give in, in practical terms is maybe to allow a little bit more ground cover around your structures. Uh, in terms of just thinking about the space as a potential for uh, additions to be added either above or uh, onto the side or around or these kind of things. Chris, in your um, in your viewing of, of many layouts, have you seen folks who have uh, upgraded their layouts, maybe changed the time on the layout or these kind of things? Is this 
Do you have any words of wisdom in terms of techniques for this kind of uh, vision for the future? Well, I can't recall any particular layouts where they have uh, brought the era forward. I mean, if I think about the big layouts I've been to that have, were started in the 80s or, or 90s, um, if anything, they have become... Um, like our time has moved forward, but the time of the layout has stood still. And they, the, the builder goes forward with his plans to complete the original vision. And uh, I might have mentioned the Moira Valley where uh, I've uh, gone and operated on a large S-scale layout. And the owner there has said, you know, if I took, if I built one structure a month, um, it would take me 10 years to build all the structures I need on this layout. And that doesn't include updating the structures that are already there. That would just be to, to meet the original vision, which he started back in the late 80s. But I think in what you were saying about um, how things change, if you were going from the 40s to the 60s or the 40s to the 70s, <clears throat> yeah, the, the coaling towers get knocked down, um, a brick building, maybe a manufacturing plant or a distribution center could have uh, corrugated iron uh, addition, uh, sheds added onto it or lean-tos or perhaps one of the the prefab uh, metal structures with the uh, the trusses, um, the windows would be replaced. The old uh, 12 or 16 pane factory windows might be replaced by by solid glass or or much uh, much larger panes, or they might be bricked in. Uh, air conditioning units added. Um, there could be a new facade added to an old building to freshen it up. Uh, perhaps change it from um, a, a factory to uh, to a warehouse or from one type of factory to another, um, you know, just changing it up. And that can that's most realistically done by looking at an area that, that has a photographic record, um, maybe your hometown or uh, a place that you're interested in modeling, either out, out west or out east where someone has taken and looked at things over time where one or two structures on the main street might stay the same and be virtually unchanged, but a number of the other ones will be updated and possibly something's burnt down and been replaced by a new structure. Um, you still have a sense of place, but the era has moved on. And, you know, of course, one of the big changes there is all the details. There'll be um, fewer fewer uh, individual rubbish cans and more of the, the big uh, green uh, boxes at the side of buildings, the cars, the types of cars, the variety of cars and their era changes. Um, the, the figures that you have, uh, all, the, all the ladies wore hats and gloves at a certain time. And that's, you know, you're going to have a figure uh, today, uh, a group of figures standing around someplace that'll have different, different dresses, different jackets, different colors, uh, like there'd be pastels at one point in time and much brighter colors than another. Uh, men wore fedoras virtually all the time at one point or straw hats. Now they have baseball caps. Um, you know, there's little clues that you can, that changes an era just as quickly as anything else. And, uh, you know, things like uh, a telephone box. 
you know, you you go mm-hmm. from the the old uh, the old glass telephone box to a small uh, kiosk, uh, freestanding, um, with no sides to it at all, just the little privacy blinkers on the side, those those blinders. Yeah. To, but today, there's none at all. It's hard, you're hard pressed to find a telephone, a public phone anywhere because certainly, uh, the, the, it's the thing that seems to date uh, date the movies as well as when they reach into a, a telephone box. We have uh, Ben from New Zealand on the line. Hello, Ben. G'day. How's it going? Wonderful to have you on the call. So you've uh, you've attended previous recordings, but for, uh, for folks listening in, could you give an introduction to who you are, your model railroading interests, and yeah, anything else you wanted to add to the discussion? Oh, um, well, my name's Ben. I live in Porirua in New Zealand, and uh, my model railway interests are varied and expensive. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Mole Railroad is anonymous, is now in session. Um, so you mentioned um, when you were in the chat uh, a few shows ago that you were interested in doing a short-line mountain railway. Um, could you describe a little bit about that railway? And now I understand that you've actually changed direction and are thinking of doing something else. But for folks listening in who may recall that show, maybe some introduction to the railway you were thinking of bobbling at that time. Uh, yeah, I was um, looking at doing the Rimataka Incline, well, the uh, Rimataka Railway, but specifically the Incline. The Incline's a 1 in 15 grade using a fell engine. And, um, yeah, I just that's always been my primary interest as far as railroading goes. It's always been the one that grabbed me the most. But, uh, yeah, uh, New Zealand uh, steam locomotives are pretty expensive, and then on top of that there's no... Um, model for that particular one so it was looking like it was going to cost me somewhere in the range of several thousand dollars to even make a reasonable effort at it so I kind of changed my mind yeah and what do you think you're modeling now uh, now I'm sort of in the um, assessing phase I'm thinking about NZ120 which is a TT scale on on the N-gauge track but um yeah, we'll see what happens with that. Eh? I'm not 100 percent sure. Just gotta gotta nail it down within my extremely limited budget. I'm currently studying. So, yeah. yeah, amen to that. Amen to that. So, in terms of the the kind of trains that were uh, were there indigenous trains in New Zealand or were they imported from elsewhere? Uh, for the vast majority of them, they're imported. Um, uh, we haven't actually had a new locomotive in New Zealand in the last 30 years, so, yeah, we tend to go elsewhere for our stuff. It's yeah. primarily 42-inch gauge, is it not, uh, Ben? Yeah, well, um, sorry, I'm very metric, so it's, uh, yeah, three three foot six inches, I, I yeah. guess that's 42, yeah. Well, that's how you get that wonderful uh, coincidence between... Uh, let's say, TT scale and the N-gauge track or uh, HO scale and track. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it it makes it difficult to find mechanisms, I expect. uh, Yeah, well, I've been, uh, uh, my first plan was to actually just scratch build everything. I was just going to find, you know, um, some model that had roughly the same wheel, uh, wheel format as what I was trying to model and then 
work from there, but it turns out that there isn't actually anything even close. So, yeah. Can you can you take liberties like the folks in the UK do, and maybe use a slightly different scale track to different scale train in terms of the actual locomotives? Um, is there something similar in in Australia or the UK that you could grab to, uh, or are they slightly different locomotives as well? Well, the uh, Fell engines actually have a second a second um, driving mechanism on the inside of the frame. And um, I was going to get away with that by just sort of modelling sort of fake details. But um, the big problem with the wheel format is that um, it's sort of, it's technically um, 042, but um, it's laid out like an 060. So the the rear wheels aren't driving, they just sit there, but um, they're laid out in exactly the same area and they're the same size, so they're quite hard to around with the um, with the mechanisms that are on other steam locomotives gosh it's, it sounds like you need to pick up an 040 that has a very short uh, a very short frame so that you can put that uh, third set of wheels in yeah I had looked at that um, really the only thing I've found that's even close is uh, German locomotives and then uh, I'd be t- you'd be talking Marklin, and Marklin stuff is incredibly expensive over here. Yeah, well, or, the export at least for because, me. Yeah. <laughs> at least for um, me, it is anyway. What about your your thoughts for doing a uh, bush tram using ON30 equipment? Um, I'm still kind of keen on that idea. It's um, it's all a, it's all a matter of uh, making making sure that it, the uh, yeah, the budget wouldn't kill me. Um, because uh, you know uh, the prices are, are much the are much the same across the board. You know, um, it's the same price as it is for people in the US, but we pay that wonderful premium to get it here to the other side of the world. So, it uh, yeah, shipping costs and everything tends to drive the price up quite a lot. So, um, going with you know NZ120, I can buy engage mechanisms and that's uh, relatively cheap and then buy the um buy the white metal or um styrene bodies to put on them and that's uh, another 70 odd new zealand dollars in terms of in terms of locals that have have bottle rail setups is the kind of an indigenous industry i know for a period of time in australia um there were locals that made bodies and did various other things to try and get around the problems that you're describing is there something similar in new zealand yeah, there's quite a big um, scratch-building community for um, the NZ120 stuff, and then there's uh, the people who do uh, SN3.5 um, for New Zealand locomotives. There's a really big community for that, but I can't afford to do that. That's uh, I got I've foolish. I've, well, I somewhat optimistically ordered the catalogue from one of the better dealers, and I think their cheapest ready-to-run locomotive was. 1500 or something like that. So, oh. so that's, <laughs> yeah, that's an airline ticket. It's almost probably better for you to fly somewhere, buy trains, and then come back in terms of the, the general cost. We also have Matt Goodman on the line. Hello, Matt. Hello, Tom. Hello, Chris. Hi, Matt. And we have Ben from New Zealand as well on the line, Matt. Hi, Matt. <laughs> so, um. Matt. 
you've you've recently done the dream. You've recently uh, gone to the UK. From what I understand, not once but twice. Would you like to give an update to your experiences in the UK and um, anything else you'd like to talk about? Uh, sure. I hope I'm not interrupting Ben, but uh, uh, yeah, I could probably yammer on about this for a while. I, I was I went to the UK like you said twice. Um, two weeks at the end of June, and then again three weeks at the end of July. Last three weeks of July. And uh, had a great time. Uh, had an opportunity to travel by train several times. And uh, the first time was during the first visit over there. Uh, some co-workers and I decided to uh, take the train to London to just do some sightseeing. And uh, I'll tell you what, I was, uh, I've always liked train travel, uh, but I haven't traveled on train for transit's sake since the mid-'70s, not counting subways and that kind of thing. And uh, I was kind of floored by the whole experience. Uh, we got on the train in Stafford, which is where we were staying, about an hour and a half trip to London. And we were on a, a straight electric train set. We were under the catenary. And uh, I was amazed with how smooth it was and how quiet it was. It's, it was almost too quiet. And uh, uh, it was just a fascinating ride. I mean, it was going to be we able to have a pleasant conversation all the way down. Uh, all the train services that you can watch the scenery go by as you uh, don't worry about driving the wrong lane, that kind of thing. Um, it was just a, 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 a just a fantastic ride. And this might sound kind of simplistic to folks who have ridden on trains more re- recently than I have, or uh, maybe in different parts of the country that have uh, regular service or the folks, the listeners who are in the UK or somewhere like that. But, but I live in central Ohio in the US, and we have no train uh, public transit whatsoever. So this was just all kind of an eye-opener to me. And uh, you know, the, the neat thing about that is that uh, in the recent past, there's been some discussion in my area of the country about train transit. And I've always been an advocate for it, but I haven't really had a basis to, uh, to, to really rest my advocacy on. And, uh, but this, this, this one train ride uh, down to London was uh, enough to kind of make me say, ah, I get it. It was, it was very, very pleasant. Yes, and in terms of model rail, you you also seemed, I mean, although we tried to prep you, Chris and I, with regards to what you'd experience, you also seemed rather overwhelmed with the uh, the variety in the UK. Yeah, and unfortunately, I, I didn't get a chance to see anything model rail related. Uh, I, I looked for some um, some events that might be going on during the time I was over there, and uh, there was one I just missed that would have been close by, uh, and, uh, you know, go- going into this, I had kind of the impression that if I walked in the U.K., I'd find a hobby store around every corner. Uh, but uh, in Stafford, where I was staying, I, there weren't any hobby stores, uh, period, at least none that I found. Um, so, but I did get, uh, as you said, I got a chance to do plenty of other things. And uh, as Chris had mentioned to me, you really can't swing a, a deceased feline around without hitting something of historical significance in, in Britain. Uh, so I made a couple trips. Um, one was to an industrial museum in nearby Stoke-on-Trent. I made another trip to uh, uh, the 15 Hug Railroad, which is in Wales, and a third trip to the uh, National Rail Museum. And these were all different weekends. Uh, the, uh, I guess what kind of amazed me first off was uh, my first trip was to the industrial museum in Etruria, which is uh, a part of Stoke-on-Trent. And what surprised me about this was it, it just walking into the site, and it's a pretty small site, uh, kind of gave me a, 
uh, open my eyes as far as uh, how much industrial heritage really means to the British. Because um, here was a, at this one site I had, on one side of me a canal uh, that people were motoring up and down this canal. Apparently it's, it's, it's maintained the full length of it by the British Waterworks or British Waterways, I forget the name of the agency is now. Um, it was working locks and whatnot, and uh, people just trolling up and down nicely and, and just a pleasant way to travel. And on the other side, I had this museum that, uh, that encompasses a, a mill that uh, in its day was used for grinding bone and flint, and that was used for the local industries. The bone was used for bone china industry, and, and the flint was used for potteries. And uh, so this industry at one point in time just provided the raw materials for, the, for other industries in the area. And uh, what was fascinating about this, and also a reminder of, of how much uh, the British uh, appreciate their, their history, is the fact that uh, yeah, this place was built in 1857. Uh, it was uh, powered by a horizontal rocking beam steam locomotive, a stationary, stationary steam locomotive. And it used the same power source, that locomotive, until uh, 1972 when it closed. Uh, so that in itself is kind of amazing that you use uh, 120 whatever years old technology into the 1970s. But the, uh, the thing that kind of floored me on top of that was that somebody saw to it that this is worth saving. Uh, they refurbished that. They put a new boiler in this in this building. Um, they refurbished the steam locomotive itself and also all the uh, all the mechanism that drove everything within the building. And uh, once a month they fire this this the boiler up. They get the steam engine running. They they do the whole bone and flint grinding process. Uh, unfortunately, that was that's done once at the start of every month, and, and my weekends didn't line up with that, so I didn't actually see the thing run. But uh, it was in very nice shape, and uh, wow, just to just you know, I, I have I've seen models of these steam locomotives, and to see one full size, and, and the fact that people are still running it, that was just uh, this was something that made my jaw drop at the floor. It was just amazing. Terrific, terrific. Yet, Stafford, um, I'm not sure what the situation is with regards to hobby stores in Staffordshire, um, but Stafford itself, I, I seem to remember, was relatively depressed um, when I lived in that part of the world. Um, but certainly if you went up to Crewe or that area, you would have seen a, a, a few decent hobby stores, and certainly the closer you get to Manchester or to, uh, to Birmingham, you would, have, uh, you would have probably hit uh, a number of towns that had hobby stores along the way. When you were in London, did you have a chance to see any hobby stores? Yeah, London was kind of a quick hit thing. I would just go down there and see all the all the tourist sites. But um, and like I said, the, both both trips, unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to see a single hobby store. But uh, the uh, but I did get an opportunity to see a couple other sites. You know, the National Rail Museum and and the Sydney Railroad. So it was certainly worth it. Um, it doesn't apply directly to the show, Tom, but. Uh, but it kind of opened my eyes to different ways of doing things in different uh, countries as far as heritage preservation and uh, and just and just outright coolness. I mean, it's, the Stenyog Railroad in Wales was just uh, just was just a gorgeous sight and have live steam running every day, uh, five trips a day, is again just kind of one of these things that just amazes uh, somebody who's used to the tourist railroads in the U.S., which was struggle on a shoestring. And uh, this is a well-maintained railroad, and uh, with multiple locomotives and uh, multiple trips per day, and and uh, these things work hard. And, and uh, it 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 certainly applies to different different ways of doing things, as far as 
preservation and also that kind of opens up the idea of, uh, you know, can this be modeled? And uh, and if, if I were to spend much more time in the UK, I think that I would uh, probably be convert to UK. <laughs> Very good, very good. Well, as we have uh, as we have been in New Zealand on the call as well, Ben, can you characterise what things are like in New Zealand with regards to uh, this kind of conservation? Are there uh, rail museums? Do you get the sense that uh, various old locomotives are being maintained? I know um, when you were last in the chat, you posted some links through uh, to folks that were still maintaining a, a historical line. Do you get a sense that these things are still important in New Zealand? Uh, definitely, um, yeah. The, the two sort of paraphrase a previous caller. Uh, you can't really swing a dead cat without hitting a rail society in New Zealand. They're uh, yeah, they're everywhere. Very is good. The puffing, sorry, is the puffing billy on New Zealand, or is it is it over uh, in Australia? Ooh, I, I'm not sure. Actually, I'm not quite that up on. Um, rail factoids at the moment. <laughs> I think it might be an Australian line, but um, yeah, it's it's the is it the Blue Mountains one, Chris? Um, I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's just some some beautiful scenery and some beautiful uh, areas for the trains to run through. Anything that was preserved in that area would be a real tourist attraction, I would think. Uh, but. Um, yeah. I know that um, down on the west coast they've got uh, one of the only four running climaxes um, still going somewhere. <laughs> it's uh, at Shantytown, I think. It's a historical village. Yeah, those are uh, those are amazing to see up close when uh, when all the uh, valve motion and the cylinders are flailing away at four yeah. times the the rate. Unfortunately, the last time I was down there, I think I was seven. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, Matt, do you think you'll be going back to the UK anytime soon, or was this just two isolated trips? Uh, it looks like probably not. Um, there was a possibility it might be. There was a possibility I might be going again here in, in uh, September, but that's uh, that's blown up. I'm sorry, September, August, but that's that's gone by. But uh, it certainly uh, wetted my whistle for making another visit with family, maybe sometime later, and and uh, get a chance to see some of these other things and and and. Because the island's not very big, but there's sure a lot to see on it. Certainly. Densely packed. Densely packed. And I think um, the, the photo that resonated most with me from your trip was the photograph of the magazine stand, which showed not only a wide variety of train-related magazines, but I think there are, there are three competing rail magazines, model rail magazines in the UK currently, and all seem to be, uh, to be moving in the right direction in terms of quality and content. Yeah, you know that that stand was amazing. I I counted the uh, the number of rail related magazines on that stand later, and it was I think seventeen or eighteen. And like you said, three of those were uh, were model rail relate, related. And, and as it turns out, uh, I got lucky in that uh, I couldn't find another newsstand uh, any place I visited in the UK that had uh, as as wide a selection as this uh, as the stand in Stafford did. Um, yeah, I bought uh, actually I didn't get all three magazines, but I got two of them, and I'm um, busily going through them and, and finding out what the level of quality is. Um, I was kind of surprised to see that uh, the one is is published by uh, Pico, and that's uh, Model Railway Modeler. Yeah, Railway Modeler. And another one's just outright called Hornbeast. Um, so 
and I, I gather it, it's, it's fairly common in the UK that the manufacturers uh, are are also publishers. There's also the independent magazine. Sorry, it skips my memory. I have a couple of them downstairs as well. I think it's a competitive market. Railway Modeler wasn't always owned by Pico, and they have a relatively softly, softly style. You find this in um, the military modeling magazines as well in the UK, um, that they've recently been bought out, bought out, actually, ironically, won by a New Zealand company. Um, and uh, they tend to have a relatively softly, softly style. Certainly reading Railway Modeler, aside from the occasional uh, full-page ads from Pico, you'd be hard-pressed to know that it was a Pico publication. Was that your reading, or did you get the sense that it was all Pico all the time? Well, I, I didn't read that one, but I got the same impression from the uh, uh, Hornby magazine. So I was the the Hornby one is considerably more heavy-handed, and obviously that was Hornby to start out with. Railway Modeler uh, has a long history, 76, 78 years now, uh, and my sense of that publication is that the readership would quickly move away. Similarly with these military modeling magazines, I think the readership, um, particularly because they also now exist in online forums. And the thing that struck me, I've got the July issue of Railway Modeler in front of me, and there was an editorial that covered uh, Google uh, Street View, very similar to what we were discussing uh, probably five or six podcasts ago with regards to the benefits of the UK um, Google Street View. I think all the magazines, including the ones in the US, and we'll talk a little bit more about Model Railroader in a, in a minute, are very, very receptive to what's going on electronically now. And certainly um, the communities and the, the folks that purchase these magazines on a regular basis, particularly because they're spoilt for choice, would move uh, to the other publications if Pico became too heavy-handed. Hornby is a different uh, different kind of beast because really they own uh, a large, uh, large foothold. I mean, Barkman's made some inroads. But really, Hornby is still uh, the quintessential uh, model train company in the UK. So I think people are slightly more sympathetic to that magazine. But then again, I don't spend a lot of time on UK model rail forums. So folks listening in who have particular expertise in this area, please do email me and we'll, we'll continue this topic at a later date. But I've, um, I've followed Railway Modeler uh, through the transition to Pico ownership and my sense through that transition is actually it's become a better magazine um, in terms of the quality of the, the photographs, the layouts and general discussion. The Prior to Pico's purchasing it was almost like um, kind of photocopy cutout magazine. It wasn't really um, following any of the, the lineage that we saw on the Soviet Atlantic with uh, Model Railroader and I think it was becoming very quickly a substandard publication. So Pico put in some new uh, graphic design, new layout ideas, and it's still relatively heavily um, it's still relatively heavily packed with ads. Uh, but I think that's that's probably a style that uh, maybe again uh, Model Railroader is leading the way with this. But we'll talk more about that in a minute. It sounds like you had a wonderful time anyway, Matt. And I I did ping you via email to see um, if you were going to be converted to. Uh, to doing some OO or potentially UKM stuff in the future, but you, you sound like you're still an HO guy. Yeah, I still am. As it's uh, you know, it's, there is the uh, the weight of uh, I guess inertia behind what I'm, what I'm doing now. And, <laughs> and uh, I've been in the U.S. Uh, all my life, except for those. Uh, well, not all my life, but uh, most of my life, except for those three weeks. So it would it would take a little while longer in the UK to get me completely converted. But uh, again, I mean the the if, the whole idea, the aesthetic that I didn't get before going over there, I, I do now, and it's uh, 
uh, it's, it's certainly something that uh, I, I wouldn't, if I saw uh, two layouts, one next to another, and one was a British layout and one was, uh, one was not, one was a U.S. based, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't any longer just steer myself away from the U.K. I would be interested in, in what I see there because I have uh, at least this small touchstone in, in, uh, with, with my trip. Certainly. Yeah, imagine what living over there for four and a half years does to you. Um, but, I mean, the beauty particularly of the stuff that's coming through Railway Modeler and the other UK magazines is they're now talking about, you know, six by two foot layouts and these kind of things. I mean, the space involved in making a relatively reasonably detailed, and this may, this may actually filter back to what Chris was saying with regards to the modules in Europe, there's certainly a style in the UK, and from what Chris was saying, also in Europe, to have smaller layouts with the potential to either stick them together or just be very detailed. Um, and certainly you've talked about this in the past, haven't you, Chris? Uh, the idea of doing less better um, instead of trying to jam as much track as you can in a space, but uh, uh, yeah, to, to do something, to pick a an 18 inch or two foot wide by four or six foot long slab and detail it to the nth degree um, is, is something that can be undertaken in addition to what you're already doing. Uh, and that allows you to explore either a different era, a different scale, a different gauge, a different prototype, all manner of things. Um, you know, without disrupting your your lifetime layout, that that you know, Matt, you're you're heading uh, for a big layout. You've done major renovations to the structure of your house in order to accommodate to your uh, your uh, trackage um, track alignment. So, I mean, you're not going to just uh, drop off, you know, all of the plans you've done on the basis of of a couple of trips over to the UK. You know, after the third or fourth one, I expect that everything will be on eBay. But you know. That's, uh, <laughs> um, I, I, um, I did want to ask Ben before I forgot, and it sort of goes on with this, uh, with this lifetime layout, uh, Ben, you're, you're having some trouble finding appropriate, uh, motive power for the type of rail modeling that you'd like to do. Um, is this, are you looking to build your dream layout right now, or are you trying to, um, develop a uh, a skill set and um, a, a roster of rolling stock. Uh, um, go ahead. At, at the moment, um, the uh, the problems with the motive power aren't really the biggest on my list of hindrances. Uh, it's really a lot more to do with space because um, I'm studying um, at Polytech for the next. Um, two, three years, and while I'm doing that, I'm staying with my parents, so I've got a really limited space. Um, New Zealand housing, new New Zealand housing isn't really big on attics or basements or anything like that, so anything I do has to fit into my bedroom. So, yeah, um, the incline's just a little bit much for something like that, so I figure I'm actually better to just... um, have something to sort of play around with and work with in the meantime, and then I can worry about my lifetime layout or dream layout when I go to uh, when I move into my own place in a few years' time. So, uh, based on the fact that you've got such a limited uh, a limited space now, are, are you going to uh, 
is this what's driving you towards the smaller scale or uh, um, is it? Yes and no. I mean, the fact is, um, um, you know, it all comes down to influences. And while I, while I do like reading about the incline and stuff, the uh, rail I'm exposed to on a more or less daily basis is very modern and NZ120 works better for that because um, that's pretty much all they do. How is the uh, kit of it? How is the kit availability for the the modern uh, diesel multiple units and stuff that you see on a regular basis? Well, the multiple units are not so much, but that that's a really easy scratch building project. Um, I, I'm not at all fussed about doing that. Uh, the um, as far as kits go, uh, they do. Um, well, I know that Track Gang does um, things like uh, DX locomotives and. Uh, a bunch of uh, detail parts and stuff like that. So doing anything for modern era is quite easy. Well, that's excellent. Um, and and um, as far as availability, I mean, can you go down to a local shop and buy some some of this stuff, or is it uh, uh, mail very, order? Yeah, very much mail order. Uh, my local shop's actually really good. Uh, Max Track they do a lot of um, secondhand, which is nice. That keeps my that'll keep my prices down, um, which is another reason why I was looking at the uh, um, NZ120 because I can just go in and buy secondhand uh, engage rolling stock and just modify from there. Very good. Mm. So, uh, what uh, what time frame are you? Ta- I mean, your studies have to take priority, but are you planning to have, uh, say, a diorama or something ready or a micro layout ready for? A show? Do you participate in any local shows there? Uh, I haven't done. I went to uh, Railex last, uh, the same time the last show recorded, and uh, that was my first. That was my first uh, model railroad um, event ever, actually. <laughs> so yeah, I'm not really involved in a lot of that. I've I've been very heavily involved in uh, in wargaming and the like, and my my philosophy with a lot of these things seems to be, you know. Find a deadline and then and then meet it. So, yeah, I just have to find a deadline. <laughs> yeah, it's a good Go crossover between wargaming and model rail, and certainly, um, yeah, I'm 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 part of that. Uh, I'm part of that fraternity as well. In terms of, um, so you have a you have a limited budget, you have limited space. Uh, these seem to be these seem to be familiar narratives through uh, model rail radio. In terms of doing things like structure building or just getting a sense of other components in the hobby, is this something that would interest you? Oh, certainly. Um, yeah, uh, I, my main job when I was uh, when I was still working in the uh, wargaming industry was actually building terrain and painting figures. So, you know, um, that's something that I find fairly easy to do um, just through years of practice. Um, I used to uh, paint and build terrain for local shops as a way of getting a bit of extra cash in. What scales? Um, oh, pretty much if you're prepared to pay me to do it, I'll do it. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, 15 mil was pretty popular with the rise of Flames of War and uh, 28 mil. No, that's was... the company that bought the UK publication, so yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can imagine Flames of War has a strong following in New Zealand. And 15mm is almost, it's kind of a 
kind of halfway between uh, N and HO, really, in scale. Yeah. Um, my primary interest with uh, wargaming, well, I got into it through Games Workshop, like many people do. So uh, 28 mil figures are really my bread and butter, but um, yeah, 15 mil is what people will pay you to do. So <laughs> that tends to be what I end up painting the most of. So, yes, so the, I guess, sorry. Sorry, uh, yeah, the 15 millimeter uh, figures are, uh, they would be appropriate for something in TT, is that what I'm getting? Mm, possibly, I'm not, I'd, I'd have to measure it up. I'm, I'm not 100% sure, I can't really picture it. Yeah, I'm just, uh, well, it's this, the, the wargaming using this different uh, kind of uh, linear scale than we're used to in, in model trains. Tom has mentioned before, the 28 millimeter figures, uh, which are common for uh, for military figures, Civil War and whatnot, would be close to S scale, and I'm trying to picture half S scale is about TT, so at yeah. 15 millimeter, right? I'm trying to get a picture of it, but uh, well, if you shrink if you shrink it down a little bit, you'd be in, and if you shrink it up a bit more, you'd be HO and a bit more again OO. I mean, I think. 15 mil is probably a good discipline in terms of structure building in a wide variety of uh, wide variety of model rail scales. Actually, so in terms of the, I mean, obviously you were building things from, uh, I'm assuming Western Europe and potentially even Eastern Europe for these kind of things. They were the kind of structures you built. Yeah, um, for the Flames of War stuff, for um, for uh, the uh, 28 mil stuff, it was all fantasy and sci-fi. Wonderful. So you've built you've built a wide variety of structures which would be equally uh, appropriate for for model rail with some tuning. In terms of the architecture in New Zealand, uh, is it um, does it have similarities to Western European architecture? Can you imagine yourself building think, structures with a, a similar style to what you were building with with Flames of War? Actually, we probably should for the listening audience, Flames of War is a Second World War fifteen millimeter um, military. Uh, war game. So folks listening in, that's when we talk about Western Europe and these kind of things, we're talking about Second World War period uh, buildings for Flames of War specifically, although they're now bringing out a Vietnam range, but I, I probably shouldn't digress too heavily. Is, the, is the architecture similar um, in New Zealand to, say, Western Europe? Um, oh, not really. Um, well, for starters, we use we used a lot of, uh, a lot more natural, um, you know, naturally occurring timbers and stuff and you know they promote kind of a different style right off the bat and then there's uh, quite a quite a distinct um, influence from the local Maori populations and stuff so yeah it does tend to be quite different I mean there's a definite European influence but it's uh, that kind of broke off from sort of the Victorian period so we've sort of gone our own way now. Yes, yeah, certainly in Australia there were early colonial designs and then it really hybridised and I, I get the sense probably New Zealand is similar but the, the Maori influence sounds very interesting in terms of actually structurally what that what does what do buildings with Maori influences look like? Oh, uh, we we tend to have quite a lot of um, uh, Maori style carvings appearing on uh, appearing on um, businesses specifically and then there's the Marais which are um, the meeting houses, um, things like that, they tend to they tend to be um, located quite close to rail as well, because of course um, back 
back when the settlers came in, the uh, Marais were already in the best places to settle. So, <laughs> you know, and um, yeah, and uh, you yeah, know, New Zealand's uh, really very big on um, on um, sticking with their cultural heritage. So, yeah, um, it tends you tend to see little bits and pieces here and there with everything, really. It just, uh, yeah, it just depends on the nature of the building because obviously we're also moving into the modern era and everything looks the same. I currently live in a big housing development and everything's beige, so certainly, certainly. But yeah, I guess I guess structure building is is the ideal part of the hobby for the space that you have available. Chris, what else do you think would be ideally suited for the kind of environment Ben's describing currently? In terms of structures themselves? Well, in terms of other aspects of the hobby, which are ideally suited to a bedroom and a relatively small amount of space. Well, I mean, you can look at, at either the, the highly detailed diorama or uh, the micro layout that's been popularized recently um, as a self-contained unit. And uh, some of those are absolutely brilliant. And in something around the TT scale, you could fit quite a bit of operations in a two-foot by six-foot uh, footprint or even if you had half of a bifold door, like a closet door, which I think they work out to be about 16 or 18 inches wide by 72 inches long, um, you could do a nice little switching layout or, uh, you know, some, some uh, stub end terminal in, in that kind of space. And, uh, you know, sort of, if, um, if, sorry. Sorry, I was sort of uh, vaguely thinking about um, doing a proto-lance layout based on the Wellington Ferry Terminal because we have uh, uh, rail ferries um, operating across the Cook Strait. Like, uh, I think um, an article I read recently said you'd be hard-pressed to find any um, any uh, rolling stock that spends more time at sea than ours does. So. <laughs> So I thought that might be quite good. I spent last night down at the ferry terminal watching them uh, load and unload um, well, there's, stock, so that might be quite good. There's been a tremendous amount of coverage recently in, in the magazines about things like the uh, the New York Harbor Railways and uh, the Belt Lines, which, which transferred uh, stock from one to another or dealt with... Uh, uh, classification uh, and ferry service uh, bringing into small industrial areas. So the the operational aspects will be very similar uh, to to your Wellington uh, ferry idea, uh, just different scenery, obviously. Um, and it it gives you a, a an awesome amount of operation in a very tiny space, which prototypically would be very compact in in a port. Uh, so yeah, that would be an excellent uh, an excellent subject. Yeah. So um, yeah, Wellington region. Where I, I live in uh, Paruru, which is just outside Wellington. It's actually very railed up. We've got, um, I think, there's three or four preservation societies around here. So there's lots of steam about the place, and that's most of them have mainline steam running. And then there's. Uh, the uh, electrical multiple units that run as our transit system and then on top of that the uh, New Zealand's um, main rail workshops are in Lower Hutt which is just over the other side of the hill from me so pretty much every locomotive and piece of rolling stock will come through Wellington at some point. 
Right. So yeah, it makes for it makes for a really interesting area to do. It's just um, not a hundred percent convinced that I want to build a model of a ferry. <laughs> wow, you could uh, leave that as a a non-modeled element, or take a really high-quality photograph and paste that on the backdrop, and and not actually build the ferry itself. However, yeah, um, uh, if if you're familiar, um, Tim Warris, who who owns the Fast Tracks company has made a portable layout uh, called the Bronx Terminal, and it is a very compact four-foot by six-foot terminal with uh, which models 90-foot radius curves, which were actually used. The, the central freight terminal house was round, and these box cab electrics would go around this terminal and, and pull cuts of uh, 40-foot cars. But he's used the, the ferry as um, its, its staging to bring its on its on layout staging and to have that to be able to draw cuts of cars from the left side, the right side, the center of the ferry to maintain balance uh, and coming in, you know, to add to the, the operational flexibility and the, and the complexity of the, of the session to, to give you more things to do. And if you, you simplified the ferry. Uh, is it a, is it an open deck or is it closed deck? Is it a bow loader, uh, side loader? It's um it's closed deck. Um, basically, uh, the top decks are for um, cars and trucks, and then the bottom deck is the rail deck. So, um, what I was thinking was, uh, as sort of an interim thing, I'd do um, just model the rail deck itself, and then I can later on build the uh, the ferry itself to go around it. Um, Terrific! Yeah, it's, yeah. It's um, it's actually quite a complicated area though, because um, the motorway goes across at one point. So I've been trying to use Google Earth to find out the track layout, but it's uh, it's kind of hidden <laughs> in places. So I need to get down there and take a bunch of bunch of photos if I'm going to go through with it. Terrific! But, um, yeah, people seem to be, you know, you can't find nicer people than railway people. So. Um, they tend to be pretty good about you coming and taking photos. Well, that, yeah, um, there's been a lot of, because of what's happened in the last 10 years with uh, uh, either sabotage or the, the that dirty terrorism word that's gone on, uh, I found that uh, any any rail employees in at least around here, they kind of look, look twice and three times at you if you come anywhere near with a camera. Um, they've never really liked you wandering the tracks. But truth uh, be told, truth be told Chris, we, we, we have photographic evidence of what you look like when you emerge from the uh, the undergrowth and come on uh, North American rail lines. And <laughs> quite frankly, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd take a second look at you if I, uh, if I saw you coming on any tracks close to where I was. I think probably the situation may be slightly different in New Zealand. But that being said as well, um, a lot of the Google Maps, uh, if you can't see the lines uh, specifically, um, you tend, there tend to be techniques in terms of zooming in and finding things around it. So even uh, non-accessible lines, there tend to be ways of, uh, of actually getting Google Maps to, to spit out the right kind of results. Increasingly, Google has other technologies as well, which are more vectorized, which you don't access through Google Maps. I'm trying to think of the technology. There's also third-party technology now, that provides vector maps, which are better in some circumstances as well. Um, but it, it sounds like you're you're on the case, Ben, uh, in terms of all possibilities. I'm certainly trying. It's a 
people find me very trying. But um, <laughs> yeah, just um, I'm yeah I'm starting to think that what I'll do as far as my uh, you know Steam Rail fix goes because you know I, I, the reason I like Steam is because I like watching I like watching the wheels go around. That's basically all it comes down to. I'm starting to think that maybe I'll get my fix for that by just joining the local Steam Society, and I'll uh, model something else. Yeah, in, in the meantime. Yeah, I was just uh, I was seconding uh, Ben's comment about liking Steam because like, he likes seeing the motion go around. That's 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 my main thing about it as well. Yeah, there's something Steam hypnotic about it, isn't there? Absolutely. Especially once you get the bigger drivers and spin at a higher speed, it's just fascinating. So Matt, um, while, while we still have you on, how's your layout looking currently, and what are your plans for uh, the next couple of months? Well, the uh, the if you recall, I had switched my focus from the at least temporarily from the, the large basement layout to the, the shelf layout, and uh, that kind of went into mothballs uh, in June. But up to that point in time, I've gotten all my rail laid on that. Uh, that's and it's kind of uh, reflecting that. That's uh layout is about eight feet long, well it is eight feet long, and it's between uh well, it's about twelve inches deep, a little less. Um and uh it's got all track down. Uh I've been been experimenting with different ways of putting uh track and ties and rail and and, and turnouts down. And uh, uh next step is to uh finish up some details, uh to make it electrically sound and uh put some power on it and see if anything see if it works. Uh so so my next uh I guess my immediate concern is to get to get everything out of mothballs. I I left some notes on it you know, to myself so I'd know where to start up again when I came back to it. And uh, uh, so, so once I get those, that's my immediate thing is to get it back out of mothballs, start working on it again. And then in the near term, I need to get the uh, uh, I'd like to get the big layout started as far as uh, getting cleats on the walls and and uh, getting at least the basic bench work up for the lower level. Uh, I've decided that I'm going to build lower level first with the uh, with the risers and whatnot pointing to the upper level, but don't uh, but may not actually build the upper level until a later time. Certainly, you seem to have the space where you could have a lot of fun on the the lower level anyway. In terms of the in terms of the distinctions between the level, I seem to recall the lower level was uh, kind of longer longer runs but very basic switching, whereas the upper level had more switching. Am I right in remembering that? Uh, there's, I, I think you're probably thinking of the two different layouts: the shelf layout and the uh, uh, the basement layout. Basement layout, I have uh, the only picture I published, I think, of that was just just the lower level, and that was the skeletal level. It was didn't include uh, you know the yards I intend to put in and and the towns and villages. The the Things I want to add in uh, to, to to kind of meet uh, Chris's point about having uh, less done better. I mean, I, I want to have these. I want to have scenes in here that are interesting to look at. Um, so that that needs to be kind of uh, decided uh, what the terrain's going to look like, where these uh, villages, where these towns are going to be, uh, and, and get some of that kind of sketched out. Uh, but that that shouldn't affect the actual basic bench work. So I can put the bench work in place, put the main line down, and uh, and while that's being done. I kind of finish out, catch up the final ideas as far as what I want the, the detailed finished product to look like. Terrific. 
Terrific. I think I'd seen the the lower level, and I maybe have heard a description of the upper level, but certainly my recollection of the lower level was, as you describe, um, long spaces. Is is the plan to actually add more detail than the the uh, original draft that you circulated of the lower level layout? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. The uh, main thing I want to start with is the the yard area, which is going to be. I want to have two large yards, well, two yards uh, on this layout. One is going to be the, the branch lines uh, terminus, and uh, that's going to be the first thing I detail out. Um, the, the the kind of thing that uh, a lot of that de- a lot of design hinges around is where the roundhouse and turntable are going to be. Uh, as anybody who's trying to design a steam air layout knows, uh, that is the key element that you have to to build everything else around if you're going to if you want to include that. Um, so that's that's kind of the uh, the not I shouldn't say sticking point, but that's what I'm working on now. And then I'll get the uh, rest of the uh, track plan for the yards uh, put down, including all the engine servicing tracks and whatnot. And then I'll move up move upstream, and and uh, I expect to have one or two towns in the lower level. Actually, I'll have at least two towns in the lower level. Um, and then I'll have a uh, a branch. I should say a branch to the main line. I should say a branch. Look at that a branch that goes up to upgrade to what will eventually become the second level. So yeah, to, to answer your question more shortly and concisely, Tom, it it will be uh, uh, detail will be added to that uh, as as time permits and as uh, as the ideas progress. And are you going to have a helix, or are you just going to have a long track that goes up to the second level? That's a good question, and um, it's something I've been struggling back and forth at first. I'm going to have uh, quite a bit of the space uh, climbed via a long track. Um, the thing I'm struggling with, and then actually the the main reason I haven't started on design for the upper level is that I expect I'm going to have to make at least a one-turn helix to get to finish that uh, climb. But the design element I'm struggling with is how you take this track that's going upgrade, uh, make it transition through the bench work of the upper level. And appear somewhere above that. And uh, if, if, to make a trans, if, if I'm going to make a long line, it has to trans- transition through the bench work. And how do you do that without cutting all your uh, uh, all your temper, so that uh, all the timber is going to hold the upper level up? You need to find a way to, to move it, uh, let transition up, and also how to make it transition smoothly from a visual standpoint. Um, I don't want this thing to run up all the way up to the bottom of the joist for the upper level. Uh, that I don't think that would work visually, but um, how do I make it visually transition from lower to upper? And yes, I've, I've pondered the same problem on a on a long shelf layout um, that I, I designed a while back. In fact, I have a space currently where I could put in a, a two-deck shelf layout where I want to do exactly what you're describing, a kind of long meandering transition. My thought was that at some point the... Um, there would need to be some visual break, basically. The train would either need to enter a, a tunnel or some kind of description like that, and again, then would need to emerge on the uh, on the, the, the upper layout, uh, the upper deck, uh, in such a way that it appears to a transition from um, from some lower point. So I guess that's always the problem with these, um, these kind of details in, in a layout. I've not actually seen any good examples of this... Um, this technique uh, in, you know, Mole Railroad or in various other magazines and publications I've looked at. But certainly with a, a long shelf layout where you have absolutely no room for a helix, 
Uh, I thought that that was a very cunning way. And also in terms of the um, kind of backdrop, you can have wonderful kind of mountainous uh, elements and the ability really to to model um, some fascinating stuff going on as this um, long long line transitions up to the upper deck. Chris, in your in your travels and your visiting of various layouts, have you ever seen a layout that has a long uh, meandering transition up to the upper deck, or have you always seen it done with helixes only? Uh, I haven't seen one that does it uh, in person. Uh, lots of plans uh, they describe it as a as a nolix uh, as opposed to a helix, um, but. If you are really jammed for space uh, and you don't have the ability to transit the the train up a long grade, uh, I did see an Ian Rice uh, layout where it was on three or four shelves of a like an IKEA shelving unit, and uh, each shelf had uh, a distinct scene on it, and you would drive the train off of the shelf onto a cassette and then move the cassette to the next shelf up and drive the train back on to the new scene. Um, so it was um, sort of a hand-operated elevator. Um, yes, Duncan and, McCree has a print who has one of those things with a pneumatic, uh, I think it's a garage door opening mechanism that actually lifts the, the train. So, yeah, the... Um, I don't know what you'd call it, the elevator, perhaps, or yeah. the, the lift. Uh, the lift mechanism is, is one that I've seen. But I think the modelling potential, and I was thinking about this with the shelf layout in particular, the ability to have some interesting sidings kind of at the halfway point or at the curve, because this would be a long L-shaped layout in my case, the ability to do some interesting modelling um, in the... Uh, the kind of elbow of the curve or these kind of things and actually utilise and maximise the space available uh, was, was something I thought about. In terms of the plans and the, the places that you've seen this, Chris, do any, do any come to mind? Is this something you've seen in an old issue of, uh, of uh, MR or something like that? Or is this just something where you've, you've, you've crossed it at some stage but probably can't recall it to that level of detail? Which, the rice, uh, the rice drawing? No, the ability, you, you described that you'd seen some drawings of uh, layouts that did have these long meandering transitions up to the upper deck. Um, oh, have I you could, seen this yeah. in Model Railroader or, or somewhere else? Uh, there was definitely, definitely several in uh, Model Railroad Planning, which is the special annual issue that Kalmbach puts out. Um, and uh, in recent MRs, there are again... Uh, they're talking about especially the the western railroads where they're tr- largely traveling through um, uh, what would you call it um, the mountainous scenery anyway so Certainly. rather than rather than going into the helix and going up they're doing the transit over um, over a long stretch uh, like you would see in a mushroom design uh, where one section overlaps the other you end up having to have a balloon out at some point to curve back and come back on your 180 degrees to go over top of your previous alignment. But uh, rather than curling up, um, you know, three feet around and around and around in a circle, you're doing it over that long stretch. Not everyone's layouts can, uh, or layout rooms can accommodate that sort of uh, travel. And I did see one, plan that was under discussion and on a forum where somebody had buried that 
that long grade behind the backdrop and everybody went after him immediately and said, if you ever have a derailment in there, that's where the train's going to stay. <laughs> yeah. Because he, he had no um, scenic reason to be able to have that grade uh, in, in the modeled area. Yeah. So he was trying to hide it. And what, of course, he was doing was making it uh, into an impossibility if there was ever a, uh, a fault. And from a maintenance standpoint, it would have to be flawless. And that's... Yeah. We all know that's highly unlikely to occur. Very rare indeed. And, and the, there was, the thought that I've had with regards to these kind of layouts, as well, sorry, sorry to butt in, Chris, is um, particularly, and you get this on the, the east coast of the US as well, but through the UK, um, well, London in particular, the idea of having trains, uh, subterranean trains as well, uh, like tube trains or um, in in Chicago and in New York, you have subterranean trains too. And having that transitioning on a shelf layout is something that I've thought about a bit uh, as well as a way to have a kind of interesting uh, subterranean trainscape that you could do uh, basic switching and passenger services and then have them merge um, into uh, a standard kind of ground level uh, layout. And I think, uh, I've, again, I've not seen plans associated with that. There is a company in the UK that makes N-scale um, UK tube trains uh, and I was hoping that they would have that kind of stuff on their site. They do have some very interesting. Have you have you seen uh, subterranean um, like passenger railway layouts, Chris? In your uh, in your wanderings, uh, I haven't seen any. They've been the butt of jokes occasionally. We said we're going to model a subway here, uh, and all we're going to have is a subwoofer that occasionally makes <laughs> rumbling sounds and blows air up through some vents, uh-huh. um, and. But oddly enough, uh, fairly recently, I would say in the last two or three years, I can recall seeing ads in the press for uh, New York City rail uh, subway cars in HO scale. So, uh, I mean, it's not like the equipment isn't available. And uh, traction modeling does have a a wide range of adherence out there, uh, thanks to people like Bob Hagee and his uh, Crooked Mountain Lines, all his scratch-built traction equipment. Uh, But... Uh, I'm guessing that the because it's there, there's a lot more people who would be tempted to model an elevated railway uh, like uh, Chicago would have uh, rather than su- a subterranean simply because it's y- you can uh, you can see it. it it's kind of hard to to make a layout where everything is supposedly buried. Um, well, the, the technique and uh, get mysterious guest nine, who has been entertaining us for for most of the show, <laughs> has posted a link to metromodels.net, which is exactly the the site that I was referring to. They use um, like corrugated tubing, which I guess you'd use for uh, particular kind of air units or um, even particular watering systems when you talk about drainage, these kind of things. The, the whole base corrugated tubing uh, for their um, layouts and I, my sense of this is that if you had uh well let's let's i don't know what you let's call it a tube train to keep the uk style running um you could actually do it close to the uh the front fascia uh the train could go down in front and particularly with the uh, subterranean lighting and these kind of things and various stations i think you could actually have a lot of fun with this kind of stuff particularly on a shelf layout um so yes i think you're right with regards to the new york trains but also, uh, you could really do both. I mean, why why limit yourself just to uh, above above ground uh, or, or what's the what's the technical term 
they call it flying rail or something like that, but rail above the roadways. You could all do a combination of both actually and get really almost uh, almost three three decks worth of layout out of a, a single uh, a single shelf layout. I, I didn't need to know that these things existed. You know, I didn't need to know that they had subway models with the tube trains. That's that's great. Something else. To, something else to, to to twist my my imagination here. Well, oh, wow. I'll go halves with you, Chris. Why don't Why don't we order the stuff together and save money? Nudge, nudge. I'll, I'll send you the bogies and I'll keep the upper uh, the carriage uh, bodies. Then is that it? <laughs> something like that. Something like uh, that. Here. But uh, yeah, no, they are they are amazing models, and uh, particularly the lighting and the ability to do stuff. Yeah. So thank you, mysterious guest mind, for uh, posting exactly what I was talking about. Uh, but yeah, so, some amazing models there. I was just going to make just one more comment on the. Uh, uh, sorry, I won't take a few uh, few tangents back. Uh, on the <laughs> transition to uh, upper levels, uh, it, it's interesting. As I was listening to you guys talk about this, I was reminded that what kind of inspired my layout, basically layout, was a design by John Armstrong, and, and he had uh, he used a helix for the main part of his transition from an upper to lower level, but he had uh, a section of the track where, where his lower level was transitioning up, then it disappeared into uh, a tunnel, I believe, and it appeared on another part of the layout as kind of an inner level uh, scene. So it was a scene about, if I recall, about six feet long, four or six feet long, and it was about uh, four or six inches above the base level or the lower level. Um, it was still well below the top level, but it was an interesting way to get hard to climb out of the way, you know, the, so the person viewing the, the uh, layout would, would see the lower level on, on this side of the, of the wall, step around, he'd see this middling level uh, or transitionary level on the other side of this wall, and then, then it would go into helix and transition its way up. And so that, that idea is also kind of percolating around my head as far as how to get that, that ugly transition done without a helix because, as you guys have been saying, and as I remember from Michelle saying last week, um, I don't want to have a trans hidden for any long stretch of, of time because... Uh, my knees already are bad. I don't want to have to kneel into a, a, a helix and find out where something's derailed, right? So uh, I want to try to Amen. keep as much. Yeah, exactly. I want to try to keep as much of this uh, visible as I can, but uh, that that leads to the aesthetic uh, questions. You know, how do you make it happen without that invisible part? If anybody gets a chance to go to UK, uh, you owe it to yourself if you have interest in trains to drive to Wales, which, by the way, is a beautiful drive to begin with. It's fantastic. And uh, ride one of those two-foot gauge uh, uh, railroads that they have. And they have about a half dozen or eight, I think, in the area. Uh, two of them are fairly substantial. Uh, fantastic. And as we still have you on the line, Matt, you're now a proud owner of a Model Rail Radio T-shirt. I am. That's true. Can you describe the uh, the general? I've I've not actually seen one of them. I just uh, create them and send them out. In terms of the general level of quality, do you think it's worth sending in a, a stump Chris question for us? Yeah, the quality is fine. The, the, the T-shirt I was actually introduced to via uh, a Skype video call with my family because it arrived when I was over uh, overseas. Uh, but uh, she held up and my wife, wife said, I really like the design. So you've got the thumbs up from my wife, Tom. Good job. Oh, well, I need, to, I need to make this point because my wife is now making bottle cap charm magnets, both... Uh, as necklaces and also as magnets. And she has special model rail radio 
bottle cap charm magnets. And if your wife likes the logo, I've just grabbed one in my hot little hands here, uh, and I have your posted address. So I'll get my wife to send one of the magnets on to you as well. Um, because, yeah, certainly it's a, a logo that, I, I, truth be told, my wife designed the logo as well. My wife has a, a background <laughs> in graphic design. Um, so, yeah, it's all, it's all my wife's doing. So pass that on to your wife, and I'll, uh, I'll see one of these bottle cap charm uh, model rail radio uh, fridge magnets will get sent out to you as well, uh, especially for your wife. I'll be looking forward to that. All right, thanks, Tom. Talk to you soon, Matt. Take care. All right, you too. The final thought that I would have, and it's not necessarily related to the discussion, is that um, I think people get hung up too much on the cost of the hobby. It's it's actually not an expensive hobby. Um, relative to wargaming. Yeah, relative to wargaming, certainly, but um, <laughs> relative to to just about any other hobby. I mean, sports, you know, your yearly fees plus all your equipment, if that runs quite a lot of money and all the rest, I think that... Um, I think we don't realise quite how quite how good we've got it. A lot of the time, we just you just have to knuckle down, and make the sacrifices. Like I'm quitting smoking so that I can actually afford to do this. <laughs> but I think for things like structure building, you can get the the basic materials relatively cheaply. And mm. whilst the locomotives themselves tend to be relatively more pricey, and the cost of track can be quite overwhelming, particularly when you start to plan out a layout in terms of the cost of the track. But the little parts of the hobby, things like structure building, um, you know, basic uh, basic design skills, even the carpentry, I mean, the wood is relatively cheap, but I think probably the, the cheapest thing in the hobby is really building, scratch building structures and uh, working on small, yeah, small hobby element scenery, as you say. So, yeah. Yeah, well I mean, put, once, well put, ben. yeah. Once you've got that um, that initial cost out of the way, you're um, you're set. That's that's the hobby on its way. It's uh, yeah, uh, but yeah, compared with wargaming, certainly cheap. <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. Well, thank you very much for calling in uh, for you. I guess it's a Sunday afternoon. Um, uh, yeah, it's yeah, just about to go one o'clock in Australia and New Zealand. If you want to participate, it's not the middle of the night or 2 a.m. or anything like that. It's actually uh, quite leisurely Sunday um, late morning, early afternoon. And, and Ben, please call back on the show. Please give regular updates. Uh, continue to inform us as your, uh, as your small layout or perhaps your structure building uh, starts. And, yeah, we'd like to be kept in the loop, so please do call back. Oh, certainly. Um, now that I've found out that the uh, toll rate is capped at $6, I'll certainly call in next time. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Well, thank you. Cheers, Ben. I'd just like to say uh, uh, um, a fond farewell and a hopefully a soon resurrection for the, uh, the Model Train Magazine Index. Well, this is really getting into the part of the show where we uh, where we talk about the Facebook group because you you announced this in the Facebook group recently, uh, Chris. Yeah, I'm a bit I'm a bit behind on the news. I had been over to the the index a few weeks ago and had mentioned it on one of the the earlier episodes about what a great resource it was if you had all this mounds of paper magazines and you didn't know where to find an article, you could go to the index and look up a topic and it would give you the the issue and the author and uh, the page number for for all of these uh, 
these wonderful articles. And of course, uh, the next thing I know, somebody has uh, posted that the that it's been shut down. Kalmbach has turned it off and will no longer be offering any of the content. Um, and you know, for various reasons that uh, that are technical in nature, they they don't want to carry on with the uh, supporting the the feature. However, uh, Joe Fugate over at uh, Model Railroad Hobbyist has put his foot down and said that even if that has to be created from scratch again, it will be done, and he is putting together a team of volunteers to make sure that uh, that a model train magazine index in whatever form will be available for hobbyists, and it's going to be released under a Creative Commons license, so it will be free, and people can't do derivative works off of it and charge for it and lock up the uh, the content. So. So is he getting that directly from Combat, or is he creating it on his own? They are in negotiations. Uh, there's discussions going on. To the best of my knowledge, this is not first-hand information; it's second-hand information. To the best of my knowledge, that uh, that somebody uh, at Mall Railroad Hobbyist is talking to somebody at Combat about making that content available. However, if it's not available, then Joe said, to heck with it. If it has to be done from scratch, everybody's going to get a handful of things and a format to put it in, and it'll all be put back together again and made available. So kudos to Joe. I've seen this done through a wiki with regards to... uh, There's a radio show in Canada that I listened to that's been going for 18 years now, something ridiculous. And they created a wiki project in order to do this with regards to every track that they'd ever played. Uh, and they were actually able to do it within a relatively short amount of time based on exactly what you're saying, this uh, this amazing ability of people to contribute to this kind of environment. The feedback, I'm not sure if Joe listens to the show, but the feedback that I would give to Joe is make the means of contributing as open-ended as possible and allow people just to sign in and do it ideally at something like a wiki format because what you'll find, I mean, your collection, for example, Chris, is uh, pretty substantial Um, and my sense is that you, uh, as you flick through, could occasionally be in front of a computer as you were flicking through any number of issues and update a a wiki-like thing as possible. If he's going Creative Commons, um, he probably should go all the way and adopt something which is, um, very ideally suited for this kind of uh, this kind of uh, collaborative work, rather than just doling it out to a few people. Because I think um, what you may find, or what Joe may find, is that this will be filled remarkably quickly. There are a hundred thousand odd current subscribers to Model Railroader, and my sense is um, that there are probably at least two, if not 10,000 folk online that have substantial collections, if he opened that up and gave anyone the access to add their amount rather than just a small number, he would probably see this thing populated very, very quickly. I, I think he has the, both the technical savvy himself and the uh, advisors on hand to make the right decisions to, to get this done and I think you're absolutely right. It's going to happen a lot quicker than anyone can uh, can imagine to get the content back in there. But um, you know, we we all there were several of us that when we realized that Callback had bought 
the the index a, a few years ago, we were thinking, oh, you know, why why did they do that? What possible uh, what possible reason would Comback have to do that? Maybe insert ads, or maybe they don't want people to look up information. And we just sort of uh, kept an eye on it, but realized quite quickly that there were no updates being made anymore. Uh, there haven't been any updates made to the database in a few years now, two or three years. So um, current uh, current magazines are not reflected in the index. Uh, however, all the stuff that I have is is perfectly accessible. Was perfectly accessible, um, and they gave whatever they were their reasons for for stopping doing it were their reasons and a lot of people disagreed with the the content felt it was the, the statements were inaccurate or at least uh, ill considered that's that's not really an issue anymore somebody else has stepped up to the plate and said they're going to deal with it and make it put it in a format an open database format that's transferable and upgradable and maintainable and uh, will be done in such a way that the the content cannot be uh, locked up and uh, derived and charged for in the future. So once it's there, it's there for everyone. And uh, really, I, I can't, uh, I can't uh, sing the praises of that effort higher. Uh, it's just a, a marvelous thing to do. It's going to be a value to everyone in the hobby for decades to come to have something like this. So Certainly. Well, if if they can get access to the paper publications, which is the once the information is there, I then it go, I guess it then goes back to AB. I'm not sure if AB Books has a periodical search. I've never used AB to buy uh, periodicals, but perhaps eBay or these kind of places in order for for folks to actually find the the specific issues they're looking for um, if they don't have access to a collection such as yours or uh, a substantial number of other uh, model railroader subscribers or prior subscribers at least. I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about the uh, the periodicals and I guess I'm I'm relatively sympathetic to model railroader in terms of the fact that uh, these kind of things are very difficult to maintain and I get the impression that they're probably understaffed. A lot of these publications now are really surviving on a, a shoestring in terms of staffing and also in terms of uh, access to the kind of resources that uh, that were really necessary. In the case of this um, radio show, for example, the description associated with entering all these tracks for the individuals that participated in it was a sizable amount of time for them, but if you can farm this out to uh, obsessive hobbyists or obsessive fans, then you do really utilise that, um, that kind of collective muscle, I guess you'd describe it as. Um, but um, are you... You're no longer a subscriber to Model Railroad, are you, Chris? No, I, I don't subscribe to uh, anything except for the two UK magazines and one SIG publication, simply because in terms of the North American-focused content, um, the, the, the style of, of uh, material that I'm interested in, I have more than enough to keep me busy for two or three lifetimes. I don't need to, to collect yet more uh, information on the same. What I, what I am doing is uh, when the annuals come out, when the model railroad planning uh, comes out and uh, the specials, uh, how to build specials are coming out, I'm picking, picking those up because those are 
collections and compendia of information, and I can then call out some of the older stuff that, that may be duplicated and have a single source of, of information. But uh, I've got another two or three magazines in the last month I haven't even read yet because I'm still going through hardcover books and uh, other you know, uh, previous magazines that have, that have come in. So I, I just can't keep up with the, uh, the, uh, the input right now. Certainly, um, certainly. Well, and, uh, perhaps then as, the, as the, the person on the show that's seen the uh, most recent Model Railroader and Railway Modeler, I'm actually, I mean, Model Railroader from a publication that I wasn't going to renew my subscription to um, maybe four or five shows ago, has improved quite dramatically. I think they have the right um, kind of content now. The content mix is good. The advertising has gone down and is certainly considerably more, uh, well, things that interest me and less, um, you know, every every hobby store from coast to coast uh, basically uh, requiring the ads. I think they are now increasingly sensitive to... Um, the internet communities as well. There was a discussion in the editorial section of this issue uh, associated with feedback that they're getting on forums and other places. Uh, the discussion, as you described, about um, what are in the specials and the annuals and now that they begin to appreciate um, that uh, they're not going to continue to republish articles internally. They're actually uh, bringing out new content uh, in those uh, publications. So I think they're... Uh, getting more sensitive to basically what people are looking for in terms of new information and just the quality and breadth of information. The articles appear to be longer than they were previously, and I just think the level of detail is improving. Um, so whether they're getting fo feedback from this podcast or online forums or a wide variety of other places, um, I'm probably going to renew my subscription. Uh, I think also it gives uh, some interesting material to talk about on this show. I was looking at... Um, at uh, Railway Model Craftsman, RMC, um, mm -hmm. recently with regards to potentially getting a subscription. But for, the, for me, the content still is, is a bit off. They, they still are um, uh, you know, reminiscent of when I subscribed to them maybe two or three years ago um, in terms of the kind of content. Uh, but Model Railroader seems to be making uh, the right kind of improvements. Um, and for that reason, I think I'll uh, renew my subscription next year. It gives me some... Um, possibility of, of talking about uh, North American style stuff as well. But um, the issue, well, both, ironically, both Railway uh, Modeler and Model Railroader uh, had relatively simple track plans in them. Uh, but track plans, I think they're trying to get into that kind of intermediate, um, you know, the possibilities of multiple turnouts, multiple towns, and interesting distinctions in the towns. The, uh, the issue, I'm, I'm looking at the July uh, 2010 Railway Modeler. They have um, what is effectively a large loop with a central uh, town. So it's, it's not a figure eight, but it looks like an eight looking at it. Uh, and that, I think, lends itself very much to a long-planned shelf layout that I've been thinking about as well with three towns along a long shelf. Um, and just some, some amazing uh, details and, and era coverage as well. Um, but uh, interestingly, Model Railroad had a, a larger loop-style layout, uh, which was still relatively simple. But again, what, what we've been talking about, focusing on the detail, on concentrating on the structures, on the kind of building, and not necessarily just the volume of track in a specific space, 
but the ability to have uh, longer sexual um, elements that, uh, I, again, per our conversation two shows ago, really lend themselves to, uh, to sexual uh, development. Uh, and as I look at my long-suffering uh, shelf layout above me, um, I think that I'll probably concentrate a little bit of time. The temperatures here, um, I, I've talked about this pretty well uh, outdoors on prior shows, but the temperatures here are a big factor in terms of actually getting stuff in. Uh, and I have a, uh, a little pug uh, and another um, short, shunting uh, steam locomotive from the UK waiting, I believe, in Canada currently for the temperatures to go. You mentioned that you, they've reached the hundreds in your part of the world. Um, when they start going below the hundreds for any length of time here, I can start uh, considering importing things. In fact, typically I like to be in the kind of 80 range uh, before I start uh, importing anything that has small wire or light plastic because really extended periods of, uh, well, you know, it gets up to the 130s on delivery trucks, even up to the 140s on some of the uh, you know, longer black delivery trucks, not mentioning any uh, particular, uh, uh, particular delivery service. But um, those kind of things can just kill anything that's got... Uh, fine plastic or even fine metal work. Um, so I need to wait till the temperatures decrease before I add anything uh, of, of the rail variety, at least, to the shelf layout. But, um, Chris, what have you been reading recently? Well, I actually, a friend of mine that, uh, that I mentioned earlier in the show who's uh, starting his garden railway, he lent me a book by Peter Jones, who's now passed away, but uh, it's called Practical Garden Railways. And uh, it's a tremendous, tremendous book, uh, hardcover. Uh, it has beautiful photography in it, very atmospheric. Uh, all four seasons, day and night, uh, garden railways, and some of the techniques for, for building them. And uh, it's given me, again, pause uh, for, for thought of how I'm going to approach the, uh, the, whole, the whole issue of uh of building it but uh i just thought i'd mention since we were talking about scratch building and the kit cast and whatnot karsten's publications the the parent company for rmc has just released uh, a book by bob walker who does the scratch builders corner uh article column in uh, rmc and it's called scratch building for model railroaders and it's 130 pages and it's twenty dollars U.S. And uh, Trevor just got his copy and said it's a marvelous book. So I guess I'm going to have to nip out and pick one up myself. Um, but again, it's it's collected techniques for building craftsman structures uh, from scratch. From scratch, uh, getting everything square and and getting everything true and uh, measuring and marking and cutting and all the things you need to know. From, from soup to nuts to, to build your your craftsman structures. And indeed, if you want to build uh, rail cars or uh, locomotives, there's uh, casting techniques and uh, uh, cutting techniques and airbrushing and everything is in it. So it's, uh, you know, $20, I think, fairly well spent. Uh, again, this is the sort of publication that I'm concentrating on rather than the, the periodicals. Um, more the compendia. So that sounds like good value, and uh, I guess it focuses on uh, North American structures specifically. 
Well, the examples are, are North American structures, but if you wanted to build something uh, of uh, UK or European um, origin, then all the techniques are applicable. It's just you'd have to use the photographs for your uh, for your uh, inspiration. You'd have to actually look at the uh, at the area you're trying to model. I'd like to try a stump the audience. How's that? Very good. Okay. Uh, now, what I'm proposing is that I will ask a question, and people in the audience can submit the answer to uh, stump at monorailradio.com. And uh, among, from amongst all of the correct answers, we will draw one person, and that person will win something a hat or a shirt or a pin or something. How does that sound? I think that's the way to go. Certainly, um, if people are interested in, in uh, the fridge magnets, I'm more than happy to, uh, to provide those to multiple people uh, who contribute, uh, could contribute responses. I'm not sure whether we'll, the winner will receive perhaps a T-shirt and uh, multiple entrants will receive these uh, fridge magnets. Why don't, why don't we do that, Chris? Terrific. Well, you see, well, going back to earlier shows where, where you had prompted me in, uh, to think about this, and I had said, well, I thought of a great question, but it only took 30 seconds to get the answer on, on Google. Um, and what I'm thinking of is to, you, you listen to the show, the question is asked, you have a week or two weeks or three weeks to come up with an answer, you can submit it, and everyone gets a chance, whether if they can't listen to the show live, they still get an opportunity to answer the question and uh, possibly uh, win themselves a prize. So uh, the first stump the audience question that I'm going to put out is to name three manufacturers of automatic couplers that existed before the KD coupler was released to the market. Okay, that's name three manufacturers of automatic couplers available before the KD coupler was released to the market. So send your answers to stump at modelrailradio.com and from the correct answers, we will draw a winner and you will get something. Define, automa define automatic couplers, says Matt Goodman. <laughs> uh, couplers that would connect together without uh, mucking about with your hands. They, uh, were either spring-loaded or otherwise. Uh, when you back two cars together, they uh, they would connect, and you could pull away with your complete train. That's uh, that's an automatic coupler. Okay. So and we do we do have one stump for you this week, Chris. Oh dear! I thought um, I was going to get away with it. <laughs> nearly, nearly. Now Matt very neatly actually answered his own stump in the process of calling in today. So obviously he didn't want to uh, humiliate you. Uh, however, Steve from Chicago did submit a stump, and what happened? What happened to your friend uh, Ron? He he used to submit a whole series of stumps, and he stopped submitting them. Um, I don't know. I haven't been in contact with Ron for several weeks now. Um, he ebbs and flows in the hobby. Uh, some things take his uh, take his attention away. He could be on holidays, or uh, 
uh, he could uh, he could be otherwise occupied. I don't know. Well, but, Ron, yes. if you're listening in, I'm missing your questions, so please, and in fact, the entire audience, please do submit more uh, Stump Chris questions. Stump at modelrailradio.com, and you could win a T-shirt, as Matt Goodman has described. They're even worth holding up via video conferences uh, to acknowledge. And I got out a series of T-shirts, and shout-outs... Uh, to uh, to the folks I, I sent T-shirts out to, um, in particular Neil Salan, who is currently in St. Louis, Missouri. I express sent him a T-shirt so he would get it while he was still in the U.S. Um, but he's attending a conference in St. Louis. If folks who are listening into this, he leaves on the 12th. So if you're listening into this prior to the 12th, you're in St. Louis. You want to be in contact with another Model Rail Radio listener. Um, get in contact with me, Tom, at modelrailradio.com if you have a layout or just want to meet Neil. Um, he's from Australia. He models in a couple of scales, I believe HO and NEN, if I recall correctly, and he won a T-shirt for an iTunes review. And um, this week, before... Uh, I'm drawing this out as long as possible, Chris, here. It's, it's a little subtle. Um, but I would like to give a T-shirt away to a listener uh, who submitted an iTunes review, uh, L-A-Y-Z-I-S, or L-A-Y-Z-I-S, uh, who submitted a wonderful iTunes review describing the fact that he listens to the show during his weekdays while he's looking through a microscope. I'm not sure if you uh, could wear a model rail radio T-shirt while you were looking through the microscope, but you have uh, one, I guess one is the right term here, uh, a model rail radio T-shirt for your iTunes review. If you would like a model rail radio T-shirt, the way to get one also, aside from submitting a stump Chris, is to uh, leave a review on iTunes. And uh, of the reviews within the weeks prior, I will select one to offer a T-shirt. So L-A-Y-Z-I-S, email me your postal address and T-shirt size. Lots of people seem to email me their postal address but not their T-shirt size. But if you could include your T-shirt size as well, I will send you a model rail radio T-shirt. But uh, Chris... Um, the, the, time so the, micros- the microscope uh, watcher is lazy eyes. Uh, L A. Well, it, I was thinking lazy eyes, perhaps as well. Or yeah, it could be lazy eyes. Could be. That's great. Oh, uh, thanks to Ben Sutton for putting a review up on uh, Talkshoe. I don't oh. know. Did we mention that? There's a there's yeah. a Talkshoe uh, at the Talkshoe page. So, yes, yeah. Very much. I'm, I'm not sure how the talk show things work, but yeah, certainly feel free to leave reviews on talk show as well. We don't publish the audio through talk show, we publish the audio through iTunes. I go back and tidy it up. And um, if you heard the live shows, you'd understand why sometimes the audio needs a little bit of tidying. Um, so we don't publish on, however, uh, we do get, I mean, Mysterious Guest 9, I think, came to us through uh, just seeing it on talk show. He didn't know about it through any other way. Um, so Mysterious Guest 9 found us purely through TalkShoe. But as we still have uh, Stephen Chicago listening in, I wanted to ask you his uh, stump question, Chris, if you're, uh, if you're ready. Uh, okay. Question, the question is relatively simple. Uh, in terms of turnouts, what is the origin of the term frog? Oh, oh no. Uh the origin of the term frog in respect to a turnout. Yeah. Oh, dear. Um, 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 casting, would have been casting. 
Uh, I, here, I'm going to let down the side again. Um, I have to say, I don't know the origin of the term frog. Uh, I'm not Googling it, Steve. Very good. <laughs> well, according to Steve, it's from a horse's hoof. Now, I would look at a frog and say, well, it looks like a frog, like the amphibian. Uh, but according to Steve, and I think this is probably a, a, a valid uh, response, there is a frog within the horse's hoof as well that is the identical appearance of a frog on a turnout. And that is the origin of frog from the turnouts. And for folks listening in, if you have a different origin of the term frog, email it to stump at modelrailradio.com. But um, Chris, I think it's fair. I think Steve's been submitting a number of questions. You've, you've answered them in the past. Steve, uh, please email stump at modelrailradio.com with a postal address and a T-shirt size, and you two will be receiving one of these amazing Model Rail Radio T-shirts. And for folks listening in, Multiple ways now. I mean, Chris has put out a Stump the Audience question, which you can submit via stump at modelrailradio.com. You could uh, leave an iTunes review, and then you're more than likely, actually, I think pretty well everyone who's left an iTunes review has received a Model Rail Radio T-shirt. You could go the Dave Frary route and um, find ways of publicising Model Rail Radio on forums and through other podcasts and uh, these kind of things. I'm sympathetic to that for sending out T-shirts too. And uh, the final means is, uh, yeah, just submit a stump Chris question and uh, puzzle the man himself. You know, I was out watching a farrier put a put a shoe on a horse today, and uh, you'd think there'd something in my head would connect the two together, but no. Oh, well. He's seen a trooper. I mean, you've, you've guessed questions that he submitted that I never could imagine that you'd guess in the past, and... Uh, so I think Steve has certainly earned a Model Rail Radio T-shirt through through nothing more than uh, always being in the chat room, always being a good sport, and uh, it would be wonderful one day when he can call back. The last time he appeared on the show it was an uh, amazing, amazing experience. I think that was the three-hour epic show, uh, of which probably the last hour was, uh, was Steve and you just riffing on building a structure. So, Steve, when you do have a chance to call in the show again, maybe, um, maybe to call in and give a, a review on the Model Rail Radio t-shirt, um, yeah, please do, please do. Oh, Tom, you didn't give us an update on what you've been doing since the last show. Oh, I think I did. That was the magazine review. It's been extremely hot. I've been generally uh, overworked and not really doing much model rail-related stuff. One thing that I have done is I've been cruising or trying to get to the local hobby stores, and with the remaining hobby stores, they've all shortened their hours, I think in large part due to summer as well, um, possibly air conditioning costs, these kind of things. So, yeah, sadly, um, very, very little actual uh, work on the layout. I really haven't had much time um, to do much of anything other than uh, uh, work-related stuff. Um, so, yeah, relatively boring um, in terms of my three weeks. Uh, however, I will endeavour to get something done by the recording of the next episode. And, uh, yeah, sorry. Sorry to the listeners. Well, there has been a recent example, actually, um, if we... We keep on touching on war games. There has been a recent example of a wargaming podcast where uh, 
the host was basically thrown off the show for not doing enough wargaming. So um, I don't <laughs> want to put that out there. <laughs> he ended up moving to Florida, actually. It all got very nasty. Um, but I don't want to put that out there. But I, I am mindful that, uh, that there may be a potential for a, a listener rebellion and me being evicted from the show if I don't actually do more mobile railroading stuff. So um, I'm certainly putting that out to the listeners. Um, but I'm, I'm mindful of this. But unfortunately, as Chris normally testifies, the, the ability for uh, a work week to uh, consume all free time uh, has just been all too apparent recently. So apologies out to the listening audience. Well, it's the, it's the work week, the holiday weeks. It's the every week seems to consume uh, more than its fair share of our attention. Uh, and I don't know whether that's just uh, because the the summer's here and the sun's out and there's so many things to do. And uh, If only uh, that were the case. If only that were the case, Chris. No, I mean, my my woes are, are more related to uh, to professional overcommitment and uh, extended uh, working hours currently. Um, but my hope is that the uh, some of that will be thrown off, the commitment part at least, will be thrown off with, uh, with more chapter writing and various other things. And it, it's funny because I... I think that in reverse, actually, the summer months, and maybe it's just the work that I do, but the summer months I never get to see. In fact, I'm lucky if I go outside and actually feel any of the warmth. I'm in kind of air-conditioned, uh, multi-secure layered bunker most of the time. Um, but when I do emerge and actually see the light, I, you know, forget things. The winter months, the hours of darkness, and typically because of the writing schedules as well, uh, from you know November through to about March is is my free period, um, rather than actually the summer months. It would be a luxury to take time off at this stage, unfortunately. I see. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it is a hobby. It's not our full time <laughs> pursuit. So yes. much as we'd I, like it to be. Yes, I'm waiting for the Scotty. If if, if folks on the Scotty Mason show are listening, in, Scott has done a couple of presentations about turning your hobby into a business or something like that. If you can release that on a DVD, I will be buying a copy of that DVD and watching it and taking notes because if there is a secret formula out there um, in terms of turning uh, one of the many hobbies uh, that I kind of maintain on a shoestring into something that would uh, would uh, be a, a professional uh, career move, I'm, I'm all ears. Um, are you are you familiar with these talks that Scott gives periodically? Uh, yeah, uh, he's mentioned it a number of times about the the benefits and pitfalls of of having your hobby turn into your jobby. It's uh, unfortunately in some cases you you turn the love of your life into the focus of your life, and it uh, becomes um, it becomes something that you shy away from, something you avoid because it's it's uh, it's no longer your your retreat. It's no longer your solace or your um, your uh, relief valve. It becomes the source of your pressure uh, to perform and put food on the table and everything else. And that's um, I mean, while it would be lovely if if we could support ourselves with these pursuits, uh, but um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't work out for everyone. And we're not all of us are going to be a uh, a Tim Warris at Fast Tracks or a Jason Schron at Rapido Trains, so uh, you know that can that can uh, delve dive headfirst and up to their necks in into the hobby and 
seem to love even more uh, yeah. when you talk to them. And uh, yeah. it's been great. Yeah, it's been great to talk to both of them. But I, I don't know if any if there are many people that could duplicate their efforts. Certainly, certainly. Well, the, the speaking of, uh, I don't. I, there was something there which which resonated with the fact that I have multiple cats staring at me, looking hungry currently. So it's about that time, unfortunately, to wrap up the show. But I'd like to send thanks out to uh, to the folks that called in. Uh, ben Sutton from New Zealand, always a pleasure to have you on the show and wonderful to actually have you on the call this evening. And similarly, Matt Goodman, a great update from the UK, and I'm looking forward to hearing uh, Matt's progress with regards to his, his various layouts. Sounds wonderful. Steve in Chicago, always a pleasure having you uh, in the chat and really looking forward to having you on the call in the future. And Mysterious Guest 9, who said um, he doesn't want to be too chummy, but wonderful having you on the call and, and submitting links. And Chris, as always, a pleasure talking to you and uh, really looking forward to a week's time. Hopefully I'll have a good update by then. Uh, and me as well. I hope to have more stuff done for the next, uh, the next update. I'll talk to you soon, Chris. Good night. Take care, Tom. Always a pleasure.